Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. Because that was perfect. That's me. I love it. It's a great challenge for you to look down every nook and cranny. (laughs) I could be here forever. Just to put things in perspective. And I think that's a sign of a good detective. This is the Narelle Fraser Conversations on Australian True Crime. Because women don't always have to be the subjects of true crime for all the worst reasons. And I thought I was going to get pinged there and then. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Did you ever come across a situation where you were investigating a cop that you knew? Well, I knew most of the ones we investigated. My guest today had a decorated career as a detective with Victoria Police. She attained the rank of Assistant Commissioner, no less, when the Me Too movement hadn't even been heard of. She was the first female lecturer at DTS, Detective Training School. In 2004, 
She was awarded the Australian Police Medal in the Queen's Birthday Honours List. Prior to the appointment of Christine Nixon as Chief Commissioner, she was the most senior sworn female officer in Victoria Police and resumed that position on Christine's resignation. She's one of approximately only 500 women listed on the Victorian Honour Roll of Women. That was established in 2001 to recognise the achievements of Victorian women as part of the celebrations of Victoria's centenary of Federation. I do go on, but she's got quite a list. She was the recipient of the 2005 Most Outstanding Female Leader Award conferred by the Australasian Council of Women Policing. She has investigated and prepared, or she did investigate and prepare, the coroner's brief in relation to Ash Wednesday, which we'll go into a bit later. She was really a female who had enormous respect in a world where respect wasn't easy to attain as a woman. She is also the reason why I became a detective. There was about a group of eight of us, and of a Wednesday night, we'd go around to Sandra's house. She'd make a quick bite, we'd have a bit of pasta or something, and then we'd have a study session. Generally, it'd go for a couple of hours. It was to help us in our up-and-coming detective exams. Sandra got no pay, no accolades, no nothing. Just her knowledge that she was helping young women achieve a goal. And for that, I will be forever grateful. She retired in 2010 after a 35-year career with Victoria Police. And if you thought being an assistant commissioner was a busy job, well, life after policing is just as busy for her. She's on more boards than you can poke a stick at, and she still does an enormous amount in and for the community. Now, that is quite an intro, but I would like you to welcome my very, very dear friend, Sandra Nicholson. I've, this has got a ring to it, but welcome to the Narell Fraser Conversations. Thank you, Narell. You started your career with Victoria Police in 1975. 24th of March. When I first left school, I got a Teachers College scholarship to the University of New South Wales, mm. and I did complete the first year. And then I thought, no, this is too dangerous. I'm not doing this anymore. So I joined Victoria Police. <laughs> what? Sorry, what was dangerous about going into a school room? Teaching. 13-plus-year-olds. With all, with all due respect to teachers. <laughs> no, I, I, teachers had my absolute oh full my God, admiration. Because, you know, trying to control a class of 13 and up mm. students would be... Mm, a nightmare. An, well, my idea of hell... To be quite honest. <laughs> well, I went to the women police and that gave me lots of opportunities. The, the telephone board with 200 <laughs> lines. I just looked at it and I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And I, I apologise now for anyone I cut off that first night. <laughs> Major achievement. So then I was sent out to Fitzroy Women Police and there I met the most amazing woman, Janet Lowe. Mm -hmm. Janet was a sergeant, also an opera singer, but she was a very tall and she just had presence. Yes. And, and she could walk us into some of the roughest pubs in Fitzroy and she was treated with the utmost respect and that was because she treated people with respect. So early on in my career I was learning these lessons. Fitzroy in those days, would that have very been? Very poor. Yep. Very mm. poor. And some mm. of the, as I said, some of the places that we went into were very rough, but she was always treated with the utmost respect. So from there they asked me, and you've got to remember I came from New South Wales, so they called me. I could tell, but I wasn't going to say anything. I know. It's obvious. It's the haircut. <laughs> the shape of your head. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> they asked me if I would go to Mildura. And I thought, yeah, no worries. I had no idea where Mildura was. Mm. thought it was just a suburb of Melbourne. So they I saw you coming. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so I packed up the car and expecting a drive of 30 minutes. Six hours later, I got to Mildura. <laughs> it was really the best thing that I've ever done. And and that's another thing that I talk about in the lessons learned, you know, accept every opportunity mm -hmm. that comes your way because I actually could have said no and um, not gone. But so why did you say yes? Because I'd never been to Mildura, had no idea where it was, obviously. And, it, you know, I like to try new things. I get bored very easily. 
So I went up there and, you know, they allowed me to work the van, the watch house. They put me in with the criminal investigation branch. They let me do... Um, Which was like a, a, <clears throat> as a detective and you weren't a detective, is that right? Yeah, I was working with the detectives wow. as a detective. Yeah. I think I was there for about 12 months and they put out a, a thing asking for... They wanted 12 women to start or, or to apply to be detectives. They were going to start a special like a rape squad, but I don't think it was called a rape mm-hmm. squad at the time. So I put in for it and um, lo and behold, because of the examples I could give from working up there, mm. two years after leaving the academy I became a detective. Gee, that would have been like I <clears> took <throat> about five years and I think generally four to five years is fair, yeah. it was fairly normal back then, but Absolutely. for two years yeah. you must have shown an enormous amount of potential. Well, I think I could actually put things in a resume that other people wouldn't have had the opportunity to do. Because you went to Mildura. Because I went to Mildura. Yeah. Mm. So if I hadn't gone to Mildura, I would yeah. never have become a detective. It's a magnificent place, Mildura. Mm. And, you know, you were very self-sufficient. If things were going pear-shaped, you couldn't call on too many more people. You mm. know, you had to sort the situation out yourself. Self-sufficiency mm. is, you know, a big thing up there. Yep. I remember one guy, because they used to have the um, consorting laws back then. Yeah, you might have to explain that. Well, the consorting <laughs> laws were that if you found a, a known criminal consorting with other known criminals, you could actually put in this consorting report and after a certain number of consorting reports, they got a free holiday back in Pentridge. <laughs> anyway, this bloke said to me one day, he said, every time you see me, you consort me. And I said, well, that's because every time I see you, you're with mm. another criminal. And he said, well, you know, how am I going to know when I've consorted enough? And I said, you don't have to know, I'll tell you. <laughs> so he was very grateful for that. <laughs> but it stopped his behaviour. He, he did get the message and stopped Consorting. Consorting oh, with that brings back criminal s- companions, in my view anyway. That's <laughs> that's really all I cared about as long as he wasn't doing it. And But, you know, those consorting reports were really good back then. Gave you Be- great information. Well, it did, and we were able to link him and a couple of the people he consorted with and I had taken yep. the consorting report yep. to this whole list of burglaries that had occurred and he was silly enough to keep the stuff in his garage. Yeah, yeah. there's so, a few of them around, silly enough to yeah. keep stuff. Yeah, yeah. so, mm. you know, they, they served their purpose back then. But, you know, as I said, if I hadn't gone to Mildura and had that exposure and that experience, mm. I would never have been a detective after two years. And, so, and they didn't, eventually they didn't put us all in a squad together. I ended up back at Russell Street CIB which mm-hmm. was called the bull ring because it was nearly all men. <laughs> but that's what they called it back then. The you know, that was, that's not my name for it. Yeah. They called it the bull ring. Yeah. They called it the bull ring for many years. How many women were um, in the bull ring? Oh, probably about three of us, I think. Two, how many men, just roughly? Oh, Russell's 50, 60, <gasps> probably more. I think I did detective training school from Russell Street. Out of detective training school, I was sent out to Doncaster. I got to Reservoir and worked with Mr. Kim West. Oh, Westy. God, that brings back memories. Yeah. He was a legend, and he really was was a legend. legend. Yeah. Westy was feared, wasn't he, by the crooks? Like, he was a a fantastic crook catcher. I don't think he went home. I think he used (laughs) to just prowl the streets 24 hours a day. Uh, oh, Westy. There was a funny story about Westy, though. He, We'd been working for something like 36 hours, which you could do then, you can't do now. And he, he what he would do is sit in on the interview and it was all typed. Yes. Remember the old records of interview that we used oh, to type? Yes, yes. Now what we do is we record it. You press a recorder, you know, and that's it. But when we first started, Sandra, it was you had to learn to type at you the did. academy mm-hmm. because everything was you'd write, you'd ask the question, type it out, type the question, ask the question, ask the question, and then, question type, the and then type the answer. And they used to take 
forever. They did. And, at and the you end had of carbonated it, paper. So you, yeah. And at the end of it, you had to get the... I wonder why the, I got PTSD. You, <laughs> God. you get the alleged offender to read it back. <laughs> that Westy would be sitting there during the read back and you'd hear in the background... <laughs> Quite often. <laughs> so after this 36-hour shift, I just said, I've got to go home. I, I don't even know my own name, so I can't yeah. really ask anyone theirs. And he yeah. said, what are you talking about? We've got more raids to do. And I thought, you've just slept. <laughs> yeah. I haven't slept yet. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to work with. Would that be – there's obviously a lot of stations that you've worked at and you've worked your way up to becoming a detective sergeant in charge of a station. Was that Carlton? Detective, senior sergeant De- in charge of a station, yeah. yes. What would be your favourite police position? Would that have been a Connie or a, a sergeant or a detective? What did you like most about which oh. rank did you enjoy the most, I suppose? It's hard to say because I really enjoyed all of them, but probably that area of Preston Reservoir in the early days was really good because that's where a lot of ne'er-do-wells lived. And, you know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun because, you know, people... What's fun? Tell the listeners out there, what's fun? What's fun is listening to their stories. You know, I had a fellow come in one day that we were charging with possession of marijuana and he then went in to tell me he was a bedwetter. And I was just sitting there thinking, I'm not sure where to go with this one. (laughs) No. It was was really the stories they told you. It was almost like... I, you know, I needed a stole on and give them, yeah. you know, hear their confession. So, yeah. but but quite often their stories were re- well, more often than not, their stories were really interesting. Yeah, I was just going to say, I find the the psych behind why they are where they are that is interesting, isn't it? It is interesting, and you know, you grow up in a particular family with particular values, and you think everyone's the same. But, you know, you listen to someone who has a completely different life and therefore a completely different mm. moral compass mm. and you can understand mm. where they're coming from, mm. but it's not where you've come from. Mm. So I, I just found their stories yeah. fascinating. And, I, you know, really from the day I joined VicPol, I couldn't believe I was being paid to yes. do what I liked doing and that yeah. was listening to other people's stories. And as you say, the stories are just, like I often say in my presentations, it was a lot of fun and there was a lot of jobs that you had where you would just shake your head and think, you know, nobody would ever believe what I just saw or what I just had to do or it it is. It's another world out there, a fascinating world and, you know, and often a very sad world too, isn't it? Oh, it's a very sad world and, you know, you you had to learn pretty quickly in your career that people all didn't live the way you did you know they they lived a perfectly good life in their world but it mm. wasn't the way you lived at one point if you were married you couldn't be a policewoman that had gone okay because uh, Rosie Shard came in in 1973 and she was the first female who was allowed in with a child so it must have finished in the early 70s did you have one of those awful black handbags? Yes, I, <laughs> I did, and my auntie, I love them. She kept asking me to put in for more. <laughs> I can remember when 1987 is when I went through the academy and oh, we got our shoes and, you know, all that stuff, but we also got a black handbag and it was the worst handbag known to man and the most daggy, but I can't remember. I don't think we actually put our firearms in there. We might have. I can't. But was there a time when you, because women didn't have a firearm, like you didn't wear a firearm, is no, that correct? Well, not not in uniform until later on. But when I first came out and went to Russell Street Police Women, no, we didn't have firearms. But the men did, didn't they? They did, but it yeah. wasn't compulsory back then to wear it. Really? No. What was your uniform like back in 1975? Were you able to wear pants or did you always have to? No, 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 no. That was not an option. That came in much later. I think I was a sergeant by the time we were allowed to wear pants. I think I might have been the first one in the line to get them, though, because it was ridiculous. You know, you had women and men doing the same job 
and, you know, women would be running down the street but they'd be running in a skirt. I can remember chasing an offender over a fence Mm. and I was in a skirt and my skirt got caught in the fence Mm. and it was humiliating absolutely humiliating because my skirt ripped and the crook got away. And in those days, I'm sure, I can't remember when it was when it changed from a skirt to a pair of pants, but they were just so much more practical. Scratchy as because they were that thick gabardine. I know, but it wasn't so much the skirts, it was the pantyhose you had to wear with them. Oh, yes. They got laddered very easily jumping over the fences. (laughs) I can remember. We used to have... There was a, a colour that we used to have. I can't remember. It was a bluey sort of a colour. Yeah, dark blue. Dark blue. But then somehow it got changed to American tans because the dark blue, it was something, you know, that the boys, uh, oh, I don't know, it was attractive to men or something wearing dark, yeah, really? wearing dark pantyhose, yeah. So that's why they changed them to American tans. Yes, never forget that. Anyway, tell us a little bit about some of the hurdles you faced in those first years. Did you face any hurdles? Not that I can recall. I mean, you know, thinking back over my entire career, any hurdles that I faced, I I can give you an example. I was a senior sergeant at Russell Street CI, criminal investigation branch, Mm -hmm. and I had a detective sergeant there and a detective senior constable, both male, both excellent workers. Mm Mm-hmm. And both of them put in for positions at a particular CIB division. Yes. And both of them were phoned and told to withdraw their applications because even if they got there, no one would work with them. Why? Well, there was probably things going on there that these two honest policemen might have not enjoyed. So, so I saw that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have no doubt that maybe behind closed doors or things like that, you know, there may have been discrimination against me as a female, but it was never overt and Mm. it was never presented to me to my face and possibly because, you know, I was a fighter. Mm. You know, if you're going to discriminate against me, give it Mm. your best shot. I always remember from the first um, I ever knew about you and I don't quite know how people... Get that respect, but you have always had enormous respect from what we call the troops. Um, possibly because I liked them, and I. But you're fair. I was fair. I spent time with them. I listened to them. You know, I listened to both sides of an argument before I made a decision about something. I congratulated them on work well done. You know, things like that, which is obviously what they appreciated. And I was a worker. Mm. Yeah, and that's one thing I do remember is that you would work with the troops. Like it wasn't mm. like you would give them directions and not do it yourself. It was like if you're going to do it, I I will too. Like you didn't put yourself on a pedestal, which is no. I think a lot of people do. And I couldn't let them have all the fun. <laughs> Thank you to the following patrons, Alison, Ginny Hall, Jody Deeth, Laura Bray, Amy O, and Mark Ophmolovia. Emily and I are currently producing a regular video series for our patrons in which we recommend true crime documentaries, books, podcasts, and whatever else we can think of that is entertaining in isolation. My pick for this week, by the way, is the brand new podcast that we foreshadowed some months ago. It's called Who Killed Leanne Holland? We'll have an interview with the producer of that podcast for our patrons in coming weeks. He's also the man behind Beanham Valley Road. You've heard from him before, Jamie Pultz. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Coming up on the Narelle Fraser Conversations on Australian True Crime, retired Victoria Police Assistant Commissioner Sandra Nicholson talks about her eight years as 2IC to Police Commissioner Christine Nixon, whose tenure was always controversial. She was Australia's first female police chief. She was promoted to the job during the Melbourne Underworld War, what we now know was the period during which lawyer Nicola Gobbo was a registered informant against her own clients and may yet see some major convictions from the period overturned. The identity of the most senior member of Victoria Police to know of Gobbo's informing is a hotly contested question. Nixon strongly denies it was her. Most controversial was Nixon's conduct during the Black Saturday bushfires on February 7, 2009, just six weeks shy of her planned retirement date. It emerged some months later during a royal commission that she'd attended a hairdressing appointment, a lunch meeting with a biographer and dinner with friends rather than remain at the command centre during the devastating event that saw 173 fatalities. But first, to Sandra's time in another tough role and a department you may remember hearing a bit about during our recent series on disgraced former drug squad detective Paul Dale. I want to go to when you were with ID, the Department of Many Changing a, Names. I think it was originally B11 and that was the number on the door. Right. <laughs> and what? when I was there, it was the Ethical Standards Department. So it had gone from IID. Okay, which was Internal Investigations Department. Department. And then it became the Ethical Standards Ethical Standards. And now it's got a new name. And I'd have to say, from my point of view, being one of the troops, this is terrible, but you would have heard it before, that we used to call ID B11, Ethical Standards, whatever you want to call it, it used to be called the filth. Mm. That's what we used to call it. It was a very unpopular job. Because really what, and isolating, because really what you were doing, you were investigating crooked cops. Would that be um, a correct assumption? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And it was a really, it was a black mark against your name if you'd worked there. Because I can remember a friend of mine worked there and he used to walk through the door of any police station and police would actually turn their back. They wouldn't talk to them, they wouldn't welcome them to the station, they wouldn't have a coffee, they were treated like lepers. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with that? Um, I think by the time I got there, it probably wasn't as bad as that because one of the big investigations that I was part of and, and the area that I had under my supervision when I was there was the surveillance unit, the tech unit and the intel unit. Is this all for crooked cops? Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Isn't it – sorry, just to interrupt. I find it oh, – scary is the wrong word, but incredible to think, and I still do, that we need a separate – not just we, you know, police all over the world, 
they need a separate department to investigate crooked cops. It, it just it just doesn't seem right. But if you're going to select people from the community, you're going to get the whole yeah. scope of what the people who are in the community. And there are some not very nice people in the community. So some of those people either target coming into Victoria Police or in Victoria Police, they're influenced to take the wrong path. So they're vulnerable sort of. They're vulnerable, but but quite often it starts out as just a minor thing, you know, similar to an old, you know, this is probably not the right example, but it's it's similar to someone who doesn't um, swipe on with their my key card. You know, you oh, might that's have a, a heinous offence, Sandra. You might have a particular opinion of that, but mm. you know, it starts mm. out with small things, something minor, and then, and then before you know it, you're being compromised, mm-hmm. and then you're becoming involved in bigger and bigger and bigger things. And you know, we dealt with the same people over and over and over again. It was the same group of people it was a, a particular workplace mm-hmm. you know it was it was probably five percent of the the victoria police population that we dealt with that's still a lot though isn't it it's still a lot but you have to remember that 95 percent came to work every day yeah. did the very best that they could mm. and went home so mm. you know five percent is what we dealt with and i remember the the case we were involved in in my troops were involved in was the big drug squad case. Oh, wow. And I can remember someone coming into us and saying, your surveillance crew won't do any good with these people because they've all been in surveillance themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, don't give us a challenge mm. because we'll rise to it. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, I I had a discussion with the surveillance crew and and they knew what we were facing, that we Mm -hmm. were actually having to work with people or work on people who knew all about surveillance. Mm -hmm. And I won't say how it was done, but Mm. it was done brilliantly Mm. and the person was arrested without Mm. any knowledge that we were no more than about three feet away from that person. Right. You know, the drug squad was a very big squad at the time. This was a very small group of people who were committing the cor- these. The corrupt? Yep, the corrupt police within yep. that mm-hmm. unit. It was a very small number of people. And yet every time a drug squad detective stood up in court and took the oath, they were questioned yep. about their credibility, about their honesty, you know, and everything else. But... But, Sandra, you'd have to say for some reason the drug squad name keeps coming up time and time again, even, you know, in the last couple of years. What is it? Why are it appears to be, you know, from a community point of view, I would say that a lot of the community would say, what is it about the drug squad? Why is there so much corruption in the drug squad? Well, I'm not sure that it's there now because what the system that they've got there now is that they move people, like you, you apply now to go to the crime department and the crime department... Which is detectives. Which is detectives. Yep, yep. So the crime department then decides where you go. So I think maybe when you applied for the crime department, you applied for a particular squad. I did. Now, my understanding now is you apply for a position in the crime department and the crime department decides where you go and... You know, you can be moved around as well. So, so you, you couldn't you actually, actually belong to the crime department. Okay, so you couldn't actually put in an application form to say, I want to go to the drug squad. I want to go to the arson squad. You put in an application for the crime squad under the crime squad umbrella. Yep. Well, that makes sense to me so that you're not getting people that want to, you know, say get into the drug squad. Mm. Do you think a lot of it's to do with um, there's money well, I think it's their yeah. exposure yes. and maybe they don't think it through either because it's their exposure to people who are involved in the, the drug industry and, and don't mm. forget they're involved in the higher level stuff. They're not involved in the, yes, the, the street, street stuff. Yep, yep. So they're looking at these people, looking at what they've got 
um, you know, the houses, the cars, the jewellery, etc. Mainly the lifestyle, people who appear to be getting away with it. Yes. And, you know, it may wear them down eventually. If you've got that little maybe um, um, chink of vulnerability and you get into the, the drug squad and you see that they're you know, there is money, mate. Look, I don't know. You might be desperate for money. You might be mm. on the brink of, you know, financial collapse or something. I don't know, having separated from your partner or something and you need the money. I don't know. That is that a possibility that you go there? Well, it could be. but I Not mean, now, it, mate, no. back then. Yeah. yeah, maybe back then. Or or the, you know, the particular bosses might target people um, to come there, yeah. um, you know, because they know that they can influence them to mm. do particular things. So mm. it's not necessarily the member. It might be a, a member who has shown some propensity to um, break the rules and, and you know, the boss, this is back then, not now, mm. yeah. um, the boss back then might have thought, oh, well, you know, there's a good person to bring yeah. on the team yeah. because they'll look the other way or join in. Did you ever come across a situation where you were investigating a cop that you knew? And if you did, how did you deal with that? Oh, well, I knew most of the ones we investigated, you know, just if, if not extremely well, I certainly knew them. But it's, it's interesting because it's interesting that the names kept coming up because there's a, a lecture I give about the lessons I've learned. One of the lessons I learned is that people don't want to have the hard conversations because I was also a hearing officer. Which is? A hearing officer is a, a police officer of at my time, assistant commissioner level, who determines serious cases of misconduct. Okay, yep. So they're not, they're not matters that could go before the court, but they're serious misconduct within Victoria mm-hmm. Police. And you, you would think that, well, one of the things that I kept hearing was, oh, I'm glad you terminated that member because, you know, he's always been a problem. We always knew he was crooked, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So you'd say, all right, well, give me his professional development file. <laughs> and you'd go there fully expecting that someone would have mm. something in there mm. about some behaviour mm. that had been noticed mm had been commented on and some action put in mm. place. I don't think I ever saw one in the whole time that I was a hearing officer because people find it very difficult to have hard conversations. Do you? No. Mm. Absolutely not because you, you're not doing anyone any favours. First of all, you're not doing the community a favour and that's why we're there. That's who pays us to be there and to do the job. Yep. But the other thing is... Sometimes the member doesn't realise that what they're doing is not the right thing. So Really? Absolutely. Yes. Can you give so me I'm any? Not, well, I'm not saying, I mean, if they're committing crime, then they're definitely, that, yeah. they definitely know. Mm. But sometimes just a comment, you know, they might make oh, yeah. a comment. And it's a comment that they've made 50 times before and no one's mm. pulled them up on it. It's mm. an inappropriate comment. But. No one's been brave enough to step forward and say that's mm. an inappropriate comment to make mm. in this workplace. So, you know, the saying goes that the behaviour you walk past is the behaviour you condone. And that that's what that person believes, that mm. that behaviour exhibited in front of all of those people where no one said anything. It must be okay. It must be okay. So... You know, I know it's difficult for people to have the hard conversations, but if you don't want to have the hard conversations, you don't take the rank and the money that pays you to have those hard conversations because that's a responsibility you have not only to Victoria Police, to the community, but you have that responsibility to the members, you know, particularly the members who are exhibiting the behaviour. So what I find... (laughs) I always found it frustrating and I don't know if it's any different now, but whenever there was a member with a behavioural issue or an issue, yeah, it was generally generally a behavioural issue, what would happen is they would just be moved. 
and as, which is exactly what you're saying. So what would happen is nobody would have that hard conversation. No. The easiest thing to do was to move that person to another station. So what happened then is they had this whole new lot of junior members often to continue Influence. their behaviour. Influence. Influence yeah. And the police department, my own belief is that I don't think they do enough in leadership and how to have those hard conversations. It is easier to move them to someone else and give the problem to someone else. Would you agree with that? Well, I think that's what did happen. I'm not sure that it happens now because there's... I hope not. Mm. Well, yeah, I I know quite a few people who were still in Victoria Police and it may still happen in pockets, Mm. but... They've gone to so much trouble and so much expense to try and stop that. But I think the worst of that was that if if there were two people involved in a situation, it was obviously it was quite often the victim mm. who had to move, you know, not the person who was committing or exhibiting the behaviour. So yeah. that was even worse still. But it is about that. It is about actually making people responsible for their own actions and accountable, accountable for their own yeah. actions and then having those hard conversations. And, and it, it is difficult. And I don't know, I guess you can promote people on the fact that they have exhibited having those hard conversations because all of those people do assessments on their staff. Mm-hmm. So you could have a look at those assessments, I suppose. That would be one way of doing it. Have a look at the assessments and just see whether or not they have called someone to account for their behaviour. Mm. And I suppose by looking at that and the fact that they had called somebody to account for their behaviour, that would be certainly a tick against their name, wouldn't it? As in, yes, this person does have the hard conversations. Has the hard conversations and actually puts something in place to change that behaviour. Did you ever consider or were you considered for the position of Chief Commissioner? Hell no. (laughs) Just tell me how you really feel. Don't hold back. No. Look, I love being out amongst the people, but I never, ever want to be the centre of attention. Mm -hmm. Never have wanted to be, still don't want to be. I really didn't see any other chief commissioners until I met Christine Nixon and became an assistant commissioner under Christine Nixon. Oh, so you were under her. I was under her. Right. For the eight years she was there. Christine was really the first one where I saw what a chief commissioner did. And, Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, it didn't matter what she did. She made headlines, good or bad, Mm -hmm. usually bad. And I saw the work that she did and it was every night and every weekend. Yep. Fortunately, she's very well supported by her husband. Yep. And when I looked and saw what she did, I thought, absolutely never. Yeah. I have no interest in being that centre of attention for a start, but I also don't want almost every minute of my life yep. taken up with this job because I had interests outside Victoria Police. You've always had a lot of interests outside, haven't you? Which is probably one of your saving graces. Oh, absolutely. Is that you have so many interests. But just getting back to Christine for a minute, she couldn't do a thing right, it appeared. She was um, criticised almost from the minute she got the job, Um, well, from my point of view. But I've got to be honest, um, I found Christine made one decision that I felt changed policing, which I've never agreed with. Christine made a decision that all alcohol had to be taken off the police premises and you weren't allowed to drink. And I must admit, there were very good reasons why she did that, because I know there was a lot of police accidents. Well, there was a couple of police accidents. They'd go home, suddenly pissed from, you know, having too much at the, you know, at the office. At the office. But what that did stop in my view, was us being able, as in the troops, being able to debrief in a a room where we didn't have to worry about anyone overhearing us. And I'm not, I suppose, it sounds like I'm using alcohol, like it's all about alcohol, but it was probably more just being able to 
have a, and everyone's going to, you know, you're always going to have people that take it to the nth degree, but I loved to be able to debrief in the office with a couple of drinks. Yeah, but you can't, I mean, you can't, on the one hand, criticise the community when they drink Mm. and drive and then have it present in your own police station where members mm. have access to it and then go and drive. I mean, I, yeah. I completely understood it. And the impetus for that, that decision, wasn't what people had at the station. It was what was up in the cupboard on the 10th floor because they all used to come and drink on a Friday night. And The 10th floor, hang on. That's where the Chief Commissioner was and all the commissioners. Well, that's why I don't know where the 10th floor was because I was on the 8th. The 10th floor, you knew you were in trouble when anybody called you up to the 10th floor. Absolutely. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, um, so when she came to Vic Pole and, and saw, you know, how well stocked this alcohol cupboard was on her floor and in her office, I think mm-hmm. she was a little bit taken aback mm-hmm. by it. Mm-hmm. Now, she didn't do it straight away. I think she just sat back and observed mm. and realised that this was inappropriate mm. when we're giving one message to yes. the community yep. and allowing police members to do what mm. they had been doing for some time. Because so. it was a very well-stocked fridge and on the eighth floor, I mean on any floor, you know, that's Friday night, that's what we did. Yep. And, but it was everywhere. And I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it was mm. everywhere, Narelle, and, yep. and senior sergeants, in certain areas would call people in off the road, mm. you know, to because drinking time had started mm. and that was very yes. inappropriate. And I do also remember bosses would get the junior members to, you know, drive them home half pissed and all that. I mean, it, it wasn't a good look. No, it wasn't um, a good look. No. But once again, it was making people responsible for their own behaviour and accountable for their own behaviour. So... You now give lectures on leadership. Can you give us a bit of an insight about what you've learned about leadership? The main thing about leading is visibility. You know, you have to have visibility and you have to have credibility. You can't lead from the back. I remember well the day that the Labor Party was ousted in November 1975 because while I was at the front, our leader was back at Russell Street. And Mm. I thought then, I'm standing here getting pelted with stones and whatever, and you're nowhere to be seen. He came down when all the action was over. Jolly decent. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, that. I mean, that was a valuable lesson to me. If Mm. you're going to be a leader, be seen. And also you've got to have credibility. You you can't ask people to do something that, that you wouldn't do yourself for a start, but also something you know nothing about that someone else in your team may know all about. That's why I say, I, you know, when I was an assistant commissioner and had to do strategic budgets, if Christine had ever seen my bank account, she wouldn't have put me in charge of all the money she did, I can tell you now. But I had very good people around me yeah. who knew all about budgeting. And, you know, instead of just spending the money, I'd go to them and say, can I buy this? And they'd go, no. Yeah. Yeah, so you surrounded yourself by good people as well. Good people who knew what they were doing. We both know Lorraine Blackwell very well. Sensational woman. Yes. Lorraine was, um, for listeners, Lorraine was my boss, um, Mm -hmm. one of my first ever bosses, and one of the many things that I loved about Lorraine was that she didn't pretend to know everything. She was in a very high position, a senior sergeant, and I went there wanting to learn to be a detective. And I'd had a fair bit of experience by this stage and always remember her saying, Narelle, I don't know much about crime investigation. You're probably going to teach me something, but what I do know about is people management. And what I would find is that if I didn't know something, I'd go to Lorraine and I'd say, oh, Lorraine, I don't know what to do here. And she said, look, I don't either, but let's go and look it up. Mm. So she wouldn't pretend to know something. She would, uh, it was like a a real connectedness because you'd think, my God, she's a senior sergeant and I'm expecting, I think I should know, but if a senior sergeant doesn't, maybe I'm not so bad after all. You know, you didn't feel so sort of dumb, but she was fantastic in that sense that, she would say, I don't know, but let's go and find out together. 
Yeah. I loved that. And that's what you're saying. Yeah. Sandra? Yes, Narelle. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Would you come back? Of course I would, just to see you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Sandra. That's okay. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Narelle Fraser Conversations on Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, Michelle Laurie here. And as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.